Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man we are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is Christ? But we know that where this man is from, when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this time, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because this, his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him, and they said, When Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then chiefs, priests, and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go to where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others asked, How can Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, where the town of David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of the Jews, Jesus, some wanted to seize him, but no one laid on hand to him. Awesome. Thank you so much for that reading. Uh, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, that reading was from John chapter 7, and you're invited to have your Bibles open, if you like, uh, to be looking at John 7. Uh, he just read verses 25 through 44. We're going to be focusing in specifically on uh, verses, I think, 37 and 38, um, the, the proclamation that Jesus gives in the midst of that. Now, to start off, I want to give some context to the words that we just heard. Uh, the passage begins in chapter 7, in verse 2, saying that this is happening during the Festival of Tabernacles. Now, for us in Abbotsford in 2023, that might not mean something um, specifically to us, the Festival of Tabernacles. Uh, but for the Jewish audience, for the people that this was first written to, this would have meant something huge. 
The Feast of Tabernacles, the Festival of Tabernacles, was the biggest celebration in the Jewish calendar. Uh, to give you a sense of how big this was, Jerusalem at this time would have been about 70,000 people. Uh, during the Festival of Tabernacles, people would come in. Uh, there would be a couple hundred thousand people, so it would be four times the size, and they would live in these booths. This feast would kind of be like Christmas and Thanksgiving kind of mashed together. It was this huge celebration of the harvest, but it was also a time of remembering God's salvation, that God would be coming to save them. Now, one of the things that I want to point out about this too is what was at the center of this celebration, because it helps us understand the image that Jesus gives. So we have all of these people gathered in Jerusalem, remembering God's salvation, and the biggest part of it was this kind of parade that would happen from the Pool of Siloam. Um, we don't have the Pool of Siloam here, but we do have a little pool. We've got some water uh, to represent that. Um, and this would have been something that they would have started at, and they would have worked their way from the Pool of Siloam to the temple. And this would have been about a 10-minute walk uh, from the southern part of Jerusalem all the way up to the temple. And they would be cheering the whole time. They'd be singing different songs. One of the songs that they would sing was based in Scripture from Isaiah 12, verse 3. They would say, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So think of thousands of people repeating and chanting that line, This joy of God's salvation will come. Now, at the center of that parade is a priest. So while they're singing about God drawing water from the wells of salvation, a priest, God's representative, is drawing water from the pool. He's taking a golden chalice. That's my representation. He's drawing water from the pool, and they are marching all the way to Jerusalem, singing of God's salvation, that it is like water. And then when they get to the, the, the center of that, when they get to uh, the temple, they read out these words from Isaiah, or they sing these words out. For I will pour water on thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So the priest would pour this on, this is my altar here. He would pour it on an altar in Jerusalem and that water would flow down from it, and the people would see that. They would see something really physical, and they would be reminded that just as that water is flowing down, so God's Holy Spirit would come and be washed over them, that their salvation would come, or that salvation would come to them. And they would do this not just once, but they would do this every day of the festival. This festival went for seven days, there was an eighth day of rest afterwards. For six days, they would do it once a day, and then they would do it seven times on that last day. Now, to get us a sense of what that's like, um, let's just practice this as a group. Uh, so I'll draw the water, and you'll be invited to follow what's on the screen. So the priest would draw the water, and he would say something to the extent of, praise be to God. And joyfully they'd be saying that. I just 
get some more joy, um, but they would be saying that. And then as they're marching, they're reminding themselves of the Psalms, the different prophets that would talk about water and how it brings life to everything it touches. This would be in October, so it hadn't rained for five months or so. It's these warm days, the land around them is dry, and they're just being reminded that they need water for life, and God is like that water. And then the leader, the priest, would pour it over the altar, and as he poured it, he would say, our God proclaims, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, my blessing on your descendants. That's joyful. There we go. We're getting close. Uh, the people that write about this time that were present there would say that this is the most joyful event. You haven't seen joy until you've seen this celebration. Now, they did this in order to remember God's promise to be with them. They did this to remember that God will save them. They looked at the water falling on the altar, and they saw that as a sign that God will pour out his spirit on them. And then on the eighth day, they didn't do that. So we'll take all that water out. We'll move this. We'll just have that sitting there dry without it. They were, they were supposed to be resting on this last day. And it's in that context, in this last day, that Jesus comes out and he stands up in the temple grounds. And that's already something unusual because usually when you're teaching in kind of that setting, you'd be sitting down. Jesus stands up. He's really going to announce something. And our passage says that he calls out in a loud voice. He is speaking so loudly that everyone around is going to hear. There's still thousands of people around. Remember, this is the biggest celebration of the year. He's getting everybody's attention. And in front of the dry altar, he is saying, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That's a big statement that Jesus is making when we know that context, when we know what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about. It's one of the themes that we've been tracing in John, if you've been uh, following with us throughout our series, is that this idea that Jesus is fulfilling what Israel had longed for. We can think of John's original audience as people who were Jewish, but they... They, they were following Jesus for a time, and they wanted to fall back to these traditional practices. They wanted to go back to the, the temple. They wanted to go back to the festivals, something that they had relied on for so long. And John is saying, what is there to go back to? Those things were good. Those are big celebrations that we had, but they were only good in as much as they pointed to Jesus. They poured water on the altar, waiting for God to come and bring his salvation, to send his Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the one who does this. Why go back to the waiting, to repeating for God to bring the water of salvation, this day after day, repeating for God to come and bring his spirit? That has already happened. God has already provided it, and he has done it through Jesus. 
You can't find it anywhere else. The best you can do is find something that's meant to point towards him. Now, when Jesus is saying these words, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, he's actually doing something quite bold in this context. If we, if we look at the broader story in John, we'll find that in chapter 4, he's already in trouble with the religious elites. So if Jerusalem's down here, he's going to avoid Jerusalem. He actually avoids the main travel routes. He travels through Samaria. Um, in chapter 4, you see him traveling through Samaria because these people are kind of after him. And the rest of the ministry, the rest of the stories that we've looked at have been up north, avoiding Jerusalem. Well, now, at this festival, at this main gathering, Jesus is back there, and he's doing something quite bold. Uh, look at verse 32 in our passage. We find that the Pharisees are actually set out to arrest him. They send the temple guards to get him. And Jesus doesn't back down in the midst of this. He doesn't go back up to um, Galilee. In this context, Jesus, the wanted man, goes to the temple, to the top, and at the top of his voice, he stands up and proclaims that he is the Messiah. He is the Savior that they have been waiting for. He points to the dry altar, and he says that he is the water. He is what that was pointing towards. And I think this is a bit of a different picture, a different side of Jesus than what we're used to. We're used to Jesus providing healings. We're used to Jesus having compassion on others, kind of the feeding of 5,000. Well, here, Jesus looks a little different. He almost kind of sounds like a revolutionary. Jesus is like someone who is pushing the boundaries, who's willing to risk it all just to communicate who he is. And by choosing this time and this place you can see that he's being really calculated in his actions. He could have said this somewhere else. He could have done this at the Sea of Galilee, uh, nice and safe, up in, near Nazareth. He could have said this in the synagogue in Capernaum and just said, oh, you know what's happening down there. Well, I'm kind of like that. He actually goes to the center of where it's happening to bring out the significance of who he is. Jesus picks Jerusalem. He picks specifically the temple, the place that the prophets had talked about, saying that one day water would flow from the temple and give life to everything around it. Jesus says that water is not just going to flow from the temple. It's going to flow from me. I am everything the temple represents and more. And he chooses the time of the festival of the booths or the festival of tabernacles to say that this water and temple images that come together, he is those things combined. In a time where people are calling out to, for God to save them, he is saying, I am that salvation. And not only is that a bold proclamation, but we can also see that it's Jesus brimming with compassion here. Our, our passage sees a lot of confusion happening. People are kind of confused on who he is. We also see and know that these people are undergoing struggle. He sees them oppressed by Rome. He sees people in despair. He sees hopelessness. He sees people at the brink of poverty, oppressed by Rome, 
unable to see any way out of it, longing for a better day. Jesus is one that knows their hearts. He knows our hearts. He knows our disappointments. And it's almost like he can't contain his compassion anymore. He just stands up and bursts out, it's me. Don't wander around in hopelessness. If you need hope, look to me. If you are thirsty for God, look to me. Another way of putting it is by saying that this passage is revealing something about who God is. God is the one who goes out and seeks his followers, who is willing to go through great lengths to let people know who he is. Uh, Sometimes we think that we have to do something maybe special to get God's attention. We think that maybe there's some sort of secret way of getting to God, some some secret Bible study or secret prayer that we need to do to, to feel like we have that salvation in God. And behind this way of thinking is the idea that we have something to contribute towards our salvation. If we only figured out this little secret, we could feel that internal peace that we're longing for. But passages like this remind us that there is no secret. It is God who goes out seeking for us. It is God who goes through unusual lengths to communicate as clearly as possible in front of the largest of crowds and the biggest of celebrations. He could hardly make it any more clear. God is the one who is on the mission here. He is seeking his people. It's not some hidden secret. He's yelling it out for all to hear. Are you feeling hopeless? Do you suffer from spiritual thirst? Come to me. So this is something that we can know about God here. God is the one who comes to you. We shouldn't get sidetracked with different spiritual programs that try to promise unlocking the secrets of who God is. If it's a secret, it doesn't match up with the Christian teaching here. The New Testament is a proclamation of new life that is free for all who come to Jesus. There's no secret formula involved. It's about a God who comes to us, who yells out the answer for all to hear. Now, another observation here is that Jesus is calling specifically for those who are thirsty. Reading the Gospels, you'll note that this is something that Jesus repeats over and over again. To receive him, you need to have this thirst, this recognition of our need for Jesus. It's a strange recruiting strategy to kind of look at it that way. Jesus isn't seeking the strongest or the smartest, the most savvy, the people with the most connections. He's not trying to get the religious elite, the people who feel like they're full. He's specifically targeting the people on the margins and on the fringes. As Jesus forms his church, this has always been at the center. Jesus' attention for those who can be seen as outsiders, the ones who really see his need. And this is where churches ought to be careful when we get too established, when we get too familiar with the rules. We have to remind ourselves of this. This is not a place for those who have it all figured out, not a place 
for people who think if we behave well enough, then we'll be fine. This is a place characterized by those who have had their thirst quenched by Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. We see the same sort of wording and phrasing in different Gospels. Uh, In the Gospel of Matthew, it says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Again, Jesus, in calling people there, he says, not come all who are strong and can pull yourself up with your own self-righteousness. He says, come you who are weary. This isn't about some sort of secret that we need to figure out. The only prerequisite is seeing that nothing else can satisfy our thirst. We don't need to bring anything else to the table. All we need to do is recognize that we are thirsty, we are weak, that we need God to come to us. So I want to finish then by looking at the second part of this, by looking at what it means for us to experience God in our midst through the Spirit. Jesus says, or John adds to what Jesus says, saying, by this he meant the Spirit. He wants to make it abundantly clear that this water that he is talking about is about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So believing in Jesus, this recognizing our thirst, means that we are now filled with the Holy Spirit. We we have our thirst quenched in him. And this is because, as we've already noted, God is the one who comes to us, something that we ultimately see in the cross. John even makes the note that the Spirit hadn't been sent yet. Here we go. The Spirit hadn't been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. When he's talking about being glorified, he's pointing towards the cross, the crucifixion. John is saying that water will pour out as a result of that crucifixion. The Holy Spirit will be given. A new age will come in because of what Jesus had done in the cross. This new age that's characterized by God's Spirit being in and with his people. So if we are wondering here if we have the Holy Spirit If we're Christians, the simple answer is that we do. It's plain and simple as that. The promise of belief is that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells with you. Because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we do, this applies to all of us who believe. Notice the description that Jesus gives as a movement from thirsty to overflowing. Rivers of living water will flow from within them. We go from needing water to being sources of water. Now think about that again in terms of the Feast of Tabernacles and the events that are going on here. Remember the pouring on the water on the altar, the calling for God to save them. They were expecting new life to come from the temple. They wanted God to come back to the temple so that they... Um, that he could give them life. And Jesus transforms the image. He flips it around, saying that new rivers of water will flow from the people. The people will now be the places where the most holy God dwells. This means that each person 
can be the place from which the healing that was meant to come, the healing that they were celebrating, comes through the people because, not because of what they're doing, but because they have God's Spirit working in and through them. Now, a natural objection that might come to a passage like this is that when we look at our lives, if we're honest, it might not always feel like we're overflowing. I might think, like, am I, am I drinking the water wrong? Um, am I, what, what's going on here? Is there some sort of secret that I'm missing? But I don't think it's about missing anything there. After all, Christianity is not about secrets. It's, it's, Paul talks about this in his teaching, that there's no secret way of just elevating yourself in your spirituality. Um, he talks about that in uh, some of his letters, that the, there were certain people, these false teachers that were saying, you just have to know this one thing, and then you'll kind of be better than everyone else. You'll have it all figured out. Paul says that those people were not to be trusted. I think instead we need to reorient ourselves in our understanding, what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to be present amongst us? And a quote that I um, found to be helpful in rerouting us there um, comes from the, the 1900s, a, a pastor and theologian. It's, it's nothing new here. He says, I am now convinced that those Christians are most filled with the Holy Spirit who are least conscious of it. All they know is that they want to serve Jesus Christ, and they feel that they are unprofitable servants. Now, according to that pastor and theologian, the people most filled with the Holy Spirit are not the people that are starting revivals. They're not the people that everyone's swarming around. It's not the people who sound really pious, always talking about God and holy things. It wasn't the people on search for the miraculous. His vision of the Holy Spirit-filled person was someone who was being formed in wholehearted service towards Jesus. They don't see the Holy Spirit working in themselves because they're not focused on themselves at all. In serving a God who gives himself for the sake of the world, these people are being transformed into those who give themselves for the sake of others. And th think about um, in the Gospel of John, we've, we've talked about the word glory and how that's been used, how people missed Jesus' glory because it looked different than how they were expecting it. When glory shows up in John through Jesus, it's in Jesus serving. It's when he stoops down to wash his disciples' feet. It re reaches its peak when Jesus gives himself up for the sake of the world on the cross. Glory doesn't show up in the way that we might expect it to if we're evaluating it on cultural terms. It's interesting to note that even when Jesus is asked to show different signs, to show us miraculous things, like in chapter 6, people ask, show us another sign. He doesn't do it. He doesn't want to put on a show for them. Jesus is not some sort of divine marketing campaign that's just there to impress everybody. He's there to reveal who God is. In the same way, the filling of the Holy Spirit often gets overlooked because people are looking for the wrong things, looking for the miraculous purely from a cultural lens. Um, I remember when I was in Bible college, 
uh, having a conversation with one of my friends and someone else uh, had came by and I mentioned to him being like, I always appreciate what Greg has to say. And he responded, oh yeah, totally. Like, that's, he, you could really see the Holy Spirit working in him. And I remember thinking and asking, like, what do you mean by that? Uh, because the guy that I was talking about, he wasn't starting any revivals. He wasn't gushing with spiritual language all the time. He didn't fit the caricatures that sometimes we would use for that. And my friend responded, oh, you didn't notice? Like, this guy's textbook Holy Spirit driven. You, you can see it. He's not thinking of himself. He's drawn into community. He's drawn to the church. He seems to just get it. There's no smugness, no selfishness in what he's doing, but he's looking out for others. I mean, what, what do we expect from Holy Spirit-filled people? Sometimes we limit the person of the Holy Spirit to an emotion or something that just grabs our attention, but the Holy Spirit is more than that. The Holy Spirit can work in that way, certainly, but he's more than that. He actually sends us out into our daily living. If we want to know if you are Holy Spirit-driven people, there's a good kind of evaluation that we have in Scripture. We can ask, are you being formed more and more into the likeness of Christ? Or, or Paul puts it in different language. He says, well, if you have the Spirit working in you, then you're going to have fruits that show that that Spirit is working. It's going to show up in how you behave. So he, he lists off these different ways in which we can see the Holy Spirit working in us. It is through things like love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The way when, when we act in these ways, we're not doing things to try to earn the Spirit. This is what it looks like to receive the Spirit, to have the Spirit working in us and renewing us daily. Now notice in looking at that list that all of these qualities draw us towards others, towards community, love, seeking peace and restoration, having forbearance, because it's inevitable that we're not always going to get along, kindness, not always something that comes natural when you're amongst others that you might disagree with on certain things. Or the last one, having self-control. All of these things are things that are meant to help us live into community as we are meant to. These things are things that undo the results of the fall. If the fall draws us into further isolation, further just to ourselves and on our own, the gifts of the Spirit bring us back as a community, back in communion with each other and in communion with God. Now, we don't always do this perfectly, and we know it's hard, but we do have the Holy Spirit equipping us. We've, we have the Holy Spirit promised for us to help us as we move forward. All of these are qualities that we should be looking to in discerning, is the Spirit at work? Is it at work with us as a church, as a whole community? And we can ask it, too, of ourselves personally. So to finish, I want to just leave these words up here. I want you to consider two things about this. First, 
Which ones do you see in your life? Which of these can you affirm in yourself as the Spirit empowering you to do things in a way that helps community thrive? And second, which ones are hardest for you? Which ones do we need to grow in to pray that the Spirit's daily renewal will work, will work this in you? And as we look at these, I invite you to consider remembering Jesus' words that whoever believes in me, rivers of living water, the Spirit will flow from within them. Let's just take a moment here. Heavenly Father, we need you. May we experience the Holy Spirit's renewal within us. May we experience life anew. And we know that despite our best efforts, we fall short. We have places where we fail in showing the fruits of the Spirit. When we fail, help us not to simply look inwardly at ourselves, but to look to you. Through your Spirit, guide us, form us ever more into your likeness. For those who are thirsty, we pray for recognition that you are speaking to them. May they see you as a God who is not hidden but shows up yelling at the top of his lungs for all who are thirsty to come to him. We thank you for this invitation, that you are a God who comes and seeks us out. Help us in responding with boldness and faith. We pray this in Jesus' name, the one who showed us your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.